Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for so many things. We can't even number them, Lord. You've blessed us in so many ways. You've saved us. You've forgiven us. You've cleansed us. And you are in heaven, Lord, ready to welcome us home. Please help us, Lord, to endure in this race. Would you strengthen us? Would you empower us to do your will? That we would love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, Lord. Would you use us for your glory? Would you speak to us this morning and encourage our hearts? Would you comfort our souls? Would you give us rest, Lord? Would you help us with whatever we're bringing in here today to lay it down at the foot of the cross, to give it over to you and be filled with your presence, your joy, and your peace? So bless this time right now as we get into your word, and may you be glorified. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Unwrapping Gifts of Encouragement. Unwrapping Gifts of Encouragement. I'm going to start with just a couple questions for you. The first question is, who doesn't need encouragement? You know, I was going to ask for a show of hands, but does anyone not need encouragement? Does don't we all at one point or another in our walks with Jesus struggle with something? I mean, we go through seasons of life. We're in the winter season right now where we haven't even got that much snow yet. Maybe we will. Look like Eagle got a little bit. But we go through different seasons of life, and depending on which season you're in, perhaps you're struggling with something. Maybe fear. Maybe doubt. Maybe some form of anxiety. Maybe worry. Maybe temptation. Who doesn't need more strength, more comfort, more support, more hope? Who doesn't need a stronger faith, more assurance, more trust? I think if we're honest, we all do, right? We all want a stronger faith. I love this short prayer, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. The man who came to Jesus and I think he said, Jesus, I I want my daughter healed and He's like, I believe, but help my unbelief. God loves that prayer. Remember the story in Exodus chapter 17 when Moses' hands were heavy? The Israelites were going to battle with the Amalekites, and God told Moses, go up on the mountaintop and raise up your staff. Hold up your arms. And Moses, when he lifted up his arms with that staff, the Israelites would prevail. But his hands were getting heavy. His arms were getting tired. And when he would let them down, the Israelites then were being conquered by the Amalekites. And if you remember, who came to his left and to his right? Who came by his side? It was Aaron and Hur. And the text tells us that they held up his arms until sunset. They were there on both sides saying, we're not going anywhere, Moses. We're going to be with you until this battle is won. And Israel did win that battle. They had victory. And Moses proclaimed, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. The Lord has given us victory. Could Moses have done that without Aaron and her? How many of us need an Aaron and a her next to us? How many of us think we can hold our arms up all on our own when we have brothers and sisters right there next to us wanting to help? We all need encouragement. It's one of the greatest gifts we can receive. I imagine myself passing out gifts to you this morning. And if I could pass out any gift, I thought, what if I could give you the gift of encouragement? And I could watch you open it up as you're sitting there. And your faith just begins to grow strong. And your hope just increases. And you leave here comforted and encouraged and more in love with the Lord. I mean, what other gift would you want than that listen to second corinthians 9 15 says thanks be to god for his indescribable gift who's the indescribable gift thanks be to god for his indescribable gift the gift is jesus christ we're gonna you guys are perhaps gonna wrap a lot of gifts unwrap a lot of gifts get a lot of things give a lot of things but at the end of the day the greatest gift is jesus christ He's the reason for this season. He's the reason for every season. He's the reason for everything. So today we're unwrapping the final remarks. We're looking at Colossians chapter 4. And so I'm kind of using a play on words to correlate this to Christmas and the presents that we're unwrapping. Paul's wrapping up this letter and we're actually going to unwrap 
these gifts of encouragement that we're going to see in Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Now, I must admit, I thought it ended in verse 16 because that's the last verse on the page in my Bible. And there's actually two, perhaps you've done that before. You're like, oh, that's where it ends. And there's actually two more verses on the back side of it. I was reading a commentary and he was commenting on verse 17. And as I was first putting this together, I'm like, there is no 17. It ends in 16. And I was glad I read that. So now I'll read the whole passage for you together right now. Colossians 4, beginning at verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement or comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also a nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So he concludes, remember my chains, remember what I'm going through. And by the way, pull that guy Archippus aside and tell him to take heed to the ministry. Tell him to take this thing seriously. Encourage him to fulfill the ministry. I read an article recently and it said that over 50% of Americans say the worst part of the holidays is wrapping gifts. I don't know if that's you or not. I don't really wrap gifts anymore. I buy little gift cards and stick them in a bag or take Leah to a bunch of sushi dinners or something and that makes up for it. But how do you wrap a bicycle? How do you wrap certain things? You know, what a headache it can be. According to um, an article I read in prnnewswire.com, 51% hate the task so much they prefer having a professional wrap their gifts and will do anything to avoid wrapping Half will go out of their way to only buy easy-to-wrap gifts. I don't know which is worse, waiting two and a half hours in line to get an In-N-Out burger or wrapping gifts. I'm not sure. We went to the mall the other night, and we were in shock with how many people were waiting for an In-N-Out burger. If, that's, if that was you, no judgment, but it was crazy. I haven't seen anything like it before. Like, they had traffic people like in and out hired I don't know how many people to just stand out in the street and direct cars because of how many cars there were. That'll create stress during the holiday season. That's for sure. With all the headaches surrounding wrapping gifts, I think it was actually the opposite with Paul. As he's wrapping up this letter, perhaps you sensed or got a feel of it, he's rejoicing. He's encouraged. I think he's happy to send this letter off and send, as we're going to see, this man named Tychicus and Onesimus off to them because he wants their hearts to be encouraged. Doesn't it bring us encouragement when others are encouraged? Don't you get joy when other people are joyful? Isn't your faith strengthened when those around you have strong faith? When you're out witnessing, when you have people around you that are there praying by your side, when they're handing out tracts too, when they're talking to people, you get encouraged. At least I do. Tommy and I were singing actually yesterday. I probably wouldn't do that alone outside. Maybe I would, but I felt a, a stronger encouragement that he was there with me singing. 
it's like we're like a wolf pack almost. You get one little wolf by himself and he can't do much. You get a bunch together and they're like, we'll take on anyone. And that's how we should be as Christians. We're, we're like a unit. We're not just going down to witness by ourselves. We're part of the body going together in unison doing the Lord's work. And so I believe Paul was encouraged, as he mentions here, and he talks about eight people. There's eight guys in this list that we're going to work through one by one. Eight men who he describes as beloved, faithful, fellow workers, servants, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Men that lifted up his arms when they were weak. Who was Moses without Aaron? Who was Joshua without Moses? Who was David without Jonathan? Who was David without his mighty men? Who was Paul without these eight dear brothers in the Lord? Paul could have said, I'm the apostle Paul. I'm going to do this all on my own. I've got this. God's given me so many different gifts. I'm an apostle and I'm a prophet and I'm a teacher. He told the Corinthian church, I speak in tongues more than all of you. More miracles, more signs and wonders, more power, more gospel presence in Paul than perhaps anyone else. But he realized he couldn't do it all alone. He needed help. And these eight men were a great support system in his life. It's been said a man without companions is like the left hand without the right. Ever try bench pressing a bar with one arm? How about with two? I think your strength goes up quite a bit, right? And that's how it is in the Lord. We can only do so much alone. We can do a lot alone through the power of the Holy Spirit. But in a group, together, we can do a lot for the Lord. So perhaps the teaching could have been called Paul's mighty men. I could have called it that. These are his mighty men who struggled with him, who fought with him, who were willing to die with him. If you read Philippians chapter 2, there's a man named Epaphroditus. There's a man in the text we're going to talk about in a minute named Epaphras, Most commentators believe it's a different person, but both risked their lives for Paul. Paul said in Philippians 2, Epaphroditus became so sick, he was knocking on death's door, trying to support Paul and minister to the Philippian church. These men were constantly putting their lives on the line for the gospel. Now we know that one of them later actually deserts Paul. His name's Demas. He's the last one mentioned here. The shortest statement is made about anyone in this list and it's at the end of verse 14 and all it says is, and also Demas. Demas sends you a greeting. Some commentators say, Paul's already senses something in Demas here. Though he's encouraged by him, he senses that he's about to desert him and we know that from 2 Timothy that he eventually does. And I think maybe the fighting got so difficult. The battle was raging and he said, that's enough. It says, Demas, loving the present world, has deserted me. But that's how dear these men are to Paul. They were, in a sense, on his left and right and saying, we're not going anywhere. We're with you to the end. True friends in the Lord. So that's the goal. We're going to walk through these eight men. Some I'll spend a little bit longer on. Some I'll just mention in passing because he doesn't say much about them. Number one, verses seven and eight, Tychicus. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our faithful brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant and the Lord will bring you information. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. There's Tychicus. He's with Paul in Rome. And Paul says, I'm sending him 1,300 miles to visit you. We know from Ephesians 6.22 that Tychicus was also going to Ephesus. Ephesus is 100 miles west of Colossae. So he's going to knock out two birds with one stone. He's going to visit both churches, perhaps some other churches in the area. You probably know this, but they had no red-eye flights back then. They had no trains, no cars, no phones, no modern technology. So when Paul says, I'm going to send him 1,300 miles, how long would that take us today to go 1,300 miles? It's around 1,000 miles or so to California. We can fly that in about two hours. So he would write today, he'll see you in a couple hours. He'll send my greetings to you. Today, or back then, weeks, maybe even months at sea. 
in horrible conditions through storms and inclement weather and crammed sleeping quarters. Men would get sick. It, would be, it wasn't a pleasant thing to travel by sea 1,300 miles in the first century. So we kind of have to get that picture and wrap our brains around what he's saying here. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to send him. I'll drive him over or he'll fly over. No, this was a long trip that was going to ensue. And Tychicus is putting his life on the line. And so Paul says, he's my beloved brother, my faithful servant, my fellow bondservant. How would you feel if someone risked their life to travel a long way to visit you and encourage you? What would that mean to you? Someone showed up at your doorstep covered in snow and their face was almost like half frostbitten. And they're like, I've, I've traveled through the snow and over sea and land to see you and pray with you and minister to you. Would you just be like, ah, that's okay. cool. Come on in. You want some breakfast? Would you be like, wow, what love, what concern. So think of that as we're thinking about what Tychicus and what we'll see Onesimus were willing to do for the Lord. So Paul builds the case for him. He starts off with, he's a beloved brother. Agapatos, sorry, the Greek is hard to say. We're used to saying agape for love. He calls him the agapatos, if I'm saying that right. I don't know Greek, but Adelphos, the beloved brother. He calls him a pistis diakonos, faithful deacon, faithful servant. If you look up Greek lexicons, it talks about one who serves tables, one who's kicking up dust, one who's constantly running around ready to serve. And then he says the third thing, he's a soon dalos, or soon doulos, a fellow slave, a fellow bondservant, one who subjects themselves to Jesus Christ. So why is Paul sending him? It's found at the end of verse 8. I'm sending him that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. What circumstances? Paul's in prison. They're probably concerned, most likely praying, as Paul asked in the chapter before. Pray for me. He asks them at the end of this chapter, remember me. How did Paul get to Rome? How how is Paul, a Jewish man who was ministering in Israel, how is he now in Rome in prison? And we don't have time to go to Acts chapter 20 and 21 and all through, eight, all through Acts 26. That's the background here. If you remember, it says that Paul was desiring to go to Jerusalem to share the gospel on Pentecost. During Pentecost, the Jews came from all over the world, all over the regions to visit Jerusalem and celebrate these feasts. So Paul goes, this is an opportune time to share the gospel. So throughout Acts 19, 20, 21, he's trying to get to Jerusalem. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. He finally gets there, even though people are warning him. And a prophet tells him, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem, Paul. They're going to hand you over. And he goes, I'm ready to die for the Lord. Stop weeping. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm ready to die for Jesus. And so to Jerusalem he goes, and he starts preaching the gospel. And if you remember, he's bound by the Romans and they're about to beat him. And he goes, excuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. Are you sure you want to do that? So from time to time, Paul pulls out that Roman card and says, just so you know, I'm a Roman citizen. I need a fair trial before you lay a hand on me. Other times he's beaten. I don't know if he's like, the Lord just wants me to be beaten. Acts 16, it says they beat him with rods and throw him in prison. Maybe they didn't care he was a Roman citizen there. I don't know. Nevertheless, long story short, he's, he's, arrested and the Jews form a plot and say we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul we want this man dead we're, we're done with him preaching the gospel people turning to Jesus Christ so they form this oath Paul gets word of it and he testifies before Felix and he testifies before Agrippa and several kings and governors he testifies before them or yeah before them and then finally he realizes he's not going to be set free. He realizes he's not getting a true trial, and he realizes they want to send him back to Jerusalem to be tried before the Jews, which would ultimately lead to his death, to which he pulls out his Roman card again and says, I appeal to Caesar. So go back and read Acts 20 through 26. That's your homework assignment until next week. 
But he says, I appeal to Caesar. And a Roman citizen, if they weren't getting a fair trial, I don't know if anyone, everyone could do this, but at some point you could say, I want to go to Caesar and I want to plead my case to the man who's in charge. And so they said, okay, we're going to ship you off to Rome and you can go before Caesar. So here he is. He's in Rome. He's in prison. He's testifying before Caesar. And surely the Colossian church and others are, they want to know how the trial's going. They want to know how he's doing. They want to know how his conditions are. Are they going to let you out? Are you, are you going to continue to be in prison? Are they going to, do you have a death sentence? What's the word? And so Paul says, I'm going to send Tychicus to you so that your hearts may be encouraged. Be encouraged. I'm doing well. He's going to fill you in on more. I'm not going to write a bunch more chapters to let you know of all that's going on over here. He'll inform you. Be encouraged. So that's a little backdrop of what's going on there. The word encourage in verse 8, parakaleo, it means close beside and to call, to come close beside someone, to encourage them, to comfort them, to strengthen them. And I thought of the three times that my wife gave birth. She's in labor. I was right there by her side for all three. Problem was, I wasn't a great encouragement. I wasn't the best encouragement. I was in and out of sleep. I joke, I would like, it's so hard to be the husband there in the room. You know, we go through so much. She's like, don't even joke like that. Like, you have no idea. She tried to do all three without the epidural. That's how hard it is. You have to get that epidural, and it takes the pain away. But my mom and my mother-in-law went in the room, and they knew what to say. They knew how to encourage her. And in part, they've been through it. They've both given birth to four kids. I haven't. So maybe my words aren't seasoned with salt as, and with grace as they should be. I'm like, hey, just move over this way. It'll be okay. And it's like, excuse me, like you've never done this before and you're not saying this graciously and rightly so. I got rebuked and kind of had to take a step back and thankfully the moms came in and were encouraging. And I think that's part of encouragement. Aren't you encouraged by others who have gone through or are going through the same thing that you are? If you're going through boot camp, do you just, you want some guy off the street to be bossing you around and telling you to do push-ups and run over here? And, or are you going to respect and be encouraged, so to speak, from a man maybe who's a veteran, who's seen the battlefield, who's been in war, and he's telling you to do this and that? And it's like, okay, I can listen to that guy. He knows, he knows what this is about. And so when I think of Paul and the Colossian church, think of Tychicus, you think of Onesimus here. These are men that risk their lives for the gospel. Anything that this Colossian church is going through, they've probably gone through it before. They're able to give special encouragement to this church and the other churches because they're seasoned veterans, so to speak. So Paul says they're going to come encourage you. They're going to come along your side and strengthen your faith and bring comfort. You could argue that anyone that encourages someone else is a picture of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, Parakletos, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's the same Greek word. It's just the noun form. The verb form is found here in verse 8. They're going to come encourage you. It's the same word used of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he's the helper. He's the comforter. He's the encourager. He's the one that's not just by your side. He's in you. And the more you rely on him and the more you're filled by him, the more you're strengthened in your walk with the Lord. One Greek lexicon states of the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, that he's the one that gives divine strength needed to go through the trials and persecutions on behalf of the kingdom. Yes, we all need encouragement from our brothers and sisters in the Lord. But you could even argue more than that, we need the encouragement of God himself. The God of all comforts, Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, we need more of him. And that's why the scripture says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You go, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm stressed, I've got this and that going on in my life, I'm struggling with my faith, I'm doubting, I'm lacking fear. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
you need more of him in your life. We're tempted to look this way and that way and this book and that book and go here. And it's like, God's like, go here, go to me, seek me, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. Be filled with the spirit. Perfect love casts out all fear. When you're complete in him, when you're growing in your love with him, the fears, the doubts, the stresses of life dissipate. We need more of him. Less of us. Number two, Onesimus. I got to pick up the pace. We're only on number two. Verse nine. With him, Onesimus, our faithful brother and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Perhaps you've heard of Onesimus. He's found in the book of Philemon. Interesting. We have the four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Onesimus is a runaway slave. Philemon is a member of the Colossian church. Onesimus once was, and somehow he ran to Rome. I don't know if he got word of Paul. I don't know if he was like starstruck and I need to go see Paul. We don't, we don't have all the details filled in. All we know is he somehow got from Colossians to Rome and here he is with Paul. And Paul says he was once useless. He was useless to you, Philemon, and it, he was useless to everyone else. But now he's useful, and that's actually what his name means. His name means useful. Philemon chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Paul says of Onesimus, I have begotten him in my imprisonment. Onesimus, he who formerly was useless to you, but is now useful both to you and me. He says in verse 12 of Philemon, I'm sending him back. I'm sending my very heart to you. So Paul says he's he's like, part of me he's my heart he's been useful to me in prison but i know he's your slave philemon i want to honor that but paul says you know what when you welcome him back welcome him back as more than a slave as a dear brother oh and by the way you owe your very life to me that's what paul says in philemon basically you wouldn't be a christian and you're nothing without me i'll just say that in passing so please do what i say okay receive him as a brother in the lord i love that I had an old director at the rescue mission where I used to work. He would always say, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. He would tell the guys in the drug rehab program, you guys got a messed up past life. It's not how you started, though. It's how you finish. Finish strong. The rest of the race is before you. And So when I think of Onesimus, I think of that. Useless before, now useful. So Paul's sending Tychicus. He's sending Onesimus to the Colossian church to inform them of his circumstances. Number three, Aristarchus. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also, we'll talk about Barnabas' cousin Mark in just a minute, Tychicus. His name means best leader. If you're thinking of a baby name, that's a good one, right? Aristarchus. (laughs) We have a very short statement on him. He's a fellow prisoner and he sends you my greetings. We see Aristarchus pop up around three times in the book of Acts. He comes on the scene in Acts 19.29. The city of Ephesus is filled with rage and this mob forms and they take Paul's companions, Aristarchus and Gaius, and they drag them into this theater. They're ready to beat them. They're ready to tar them with feathers and kill them. And the town clerk says, whoa, 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 there's a mob forming here. And we know what Rome thinks about mobs. They don't like riots. So they, they quieted down and he said, why don't we just disperse and we'll pick this back up another time? Because the Romans, if they saw a riot or a mob and it was getting out of control, they're sending in hundreds, if not thousands of troops, and it's not going to end pretty. And so the town clerk shakes him up and says, whoa, easy with Aristarchus and Gaius. Maybe we'll give them a somewhat fair trial. By this time, the mob dispersed and Aristarchus walked out and Gaius and they licked their wounds and they dodged a bullet. So that's where we first see Aristarchus. And he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 in passing and then in Acts chapter 27, verse 2, Paul's being shipped off to Rome, as I mentioned earlier. And during that traveling engagement, let's just say, the ship was wrecked, if you know the story. 
And so they had to swim to shore, and there's Aristarchus with him. And they arrive at Malta, and it's freezing outside. Imagine swimming in cold water. You get to this island. They're building this fire. Paul reaches his hand over to grab some wood, and he's bitten by a deadly snake. He shakes it off and just goes on with his day. And the native or natives to the island say, he's a dead man. Man, he, the gods allowed him to live after that crazy shipwreck, but now he's dead. Paul just shakes it off, goes on with his life, and a couple hours later, they're like, he's a god. This is amazing. He goes on to heal a bunch of people at the island and then goes on and finally makes it to Rome a couple months later. There's Aristarchus with him through that entire time. Some commentators say that it says that he's a fellow prisoner, that he voluntarily went to prison with Paul. That he said, I, I want to minister to Paul. I want to encourage him. I want to comfort him. So I'm willingly going to go to prison with him. So that's Aristarchus. You know who he reminds me of? As I was looking over my notes this morning, I thought of Ruth. Remember Ruth and Naomi? And Naomi, she says, Ruth, and to the other lady, I don't, I'm forgetting her name. I don't even know if it mentions her in Ruth. He says, go back. Just go back to your country. Go worship your gods. I'm going back to the land of Israel. And the other girl goes back. But what does it say about Ruth? It says she was clinging to Naomi. She said, where you, she said, no, I'm not going back. I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Your God, I will worship. And where you die, I will die. That's awesome loyalty. That's what I see with Aristarchus. That's what I see with these men who are by Paul's side. Yeah, we're shipwrecked. Paul, I'm still here. Okay, you're going to prison in Rome. I'm right here with you, Paul. Paul, where you go, I'm going. We worship the same God. We're in this together. That's true loyalty. That's a true friend. That's a true brother. You start to know who your true friends are when adversity strikes in your life. People win the lottery and their friends call them up that they haven't talked to in 50 years. Hey, how's it going? But what happens when it's the opposite? When you're going through struggles, when you're going through difficult times and you hear crickets, no one's around you. Paul needed these men and they were faithful to be by his side. Fourth person we see, verse 10, Mark. He's actually addressed as Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. We know that Paul thought highly of Barnabas. To not introduce Mark is just Mark, but this is Barnabas' cousin, Mark. Barnabas' name actually means the son of encouragement. He comes on the scene in Acts chapter 4. He sells his land, he lays the money at the apostles' feet, and he's ready to serve the Lord. And so he does from Acts 4 to the, to the, for the rest of the book of Acts. He's mentioned 25 times as an encourager to Paul. When Saul, the persecutor, became Paul the apostle, there was Barnabas bringing him to the other apostles and saying, he's one of us now. Remember the early church, they were all scared. That maybe this is a cover. Maybe, maybe he's still a persecutor and he's just trying to spy on us or get the inside scoop and Barnabas says, no, I vouch for him. I'm the, I'm the son of encouragement. I'm here to encourage you guys. Paul is now on our side. But if you remember in Acts 15, they kind of had a falling out. Paul and Barnabas had a dispute over a man named Mark. Barnabas said, we need to bring Mark with us. He's useful. Paul says, no, he's not useful. He deserted us. Well, it's Barnabas's cousin, a close family member. He, so he has skin in the game, so to speak. He, he wants him to go. This is, this is my little nephew or cousin. I want him to go with us. And the, it says the disagreement was so sharp that they went separate ways. Barnabas took his cousin Mark. Paul took Silas, and they went on separate missionary journeys. But here we see... Barnabas' cousin, Mark. We see that Mark is, again, useful to Paul. We see that Paul is holding Barnabas in high esteem. This is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's Mark. And we're told in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul told Timothy, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. It's not how you start, it's how you finish, Mark. 
as far as we know, finish well. Number five, Jesus called justice. Verse 11, he says, And also Jesus, who is called justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Jesus or Joshua called justice. What does the name justice mean? It means just. Go figure. Justice, just, righteous. James the just, James the justice one. Some believe he's called justice because in honor of Jesus, there's only one that we should call Jesus, though it was Joshua, a prominent name. They would go to another name like justice. Jesus called justice. According to Eusebius, the third bishop in Jerusalem was named justice. There's a Matthias called justice in Acts 123. There's a Titius justice in Acts 18.7. But as for this justice here, there's very little known. One commentary actually puts it this way. Of Jesus' justice, we know nothing beyond the mention of his name here. So outside of him mentioned right here, there's no other mention in the New Testament. But what's mentioned here is very profound. He proved with Tychicus and with Mark to be an encouragement to Paul when he needed them most. This word encouragement is different from the one found in verse 8, parakletos, paraklesis. This word here is paraurea. It's only used this one time in the entire New Testament. Paul says these men have been a comfort, periorea, it actually means soothing relief, comfort in the midst of pain. It was an ancient medical term for alleviation, used in med- medical literature for alleviation to pain or wounds in the body. When you have a sunburn, what do you need? What, what, what would help you if you have a bad sunburn? Maybe aloe vera, some sort of soothing ointment. Paul's saying that's what they are to me in my pain. You have a sore throat, maybe you drink honey or warm tea or maybe you pop a couple Advil or ibuprofen. I don't know. You ever had a really bad sore throat? You're asleep at night and you're, for some reason, it seems like when you have a sore throat, you have to swallow like every three seconds for some reason. At least that's how it is with me. It's like, why do I have to keep swallowing all of a sudden and just feel this pain over and over again? But you're too tired to get out of bed, so you just lay there and suffer all night. If you come to our house, our medicine cabinet looks like a drugstore. Over the years, we've purchased enough medicines that I don't know if they even do anything. But when there's sickness in our home, we go to town. We throw the whole kitchen sink and everything at the sickness. We're taking pills from morning to night. We have these breathing treatments. I don't know if they work. I'm up for anything, but, and I don't even know what my point is to any of that, but (laughs) that's typical for me. Um, What Paul is saying here, I guess if there's any relation to what I'm saying, is these men are like your medicine cabinet to me. They're here to minister to me, encourage me, and alleviate the pain and and comfort me when I need them the, the most. The opposite of this would be Job 16.2. Job says this, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. In a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's actually a very similar word to the one Paul uses only, that's used only once here in the New Testament. You guys are not an alleviation to my pain. You guys are not a comfort to my pain. You're not helping. I have a sore throat. You're making it worse. I have a sunburn and you didn't bring ointment you brought a tanning bed and said lay in it in modern day analogy i needed help you didn't bring it you brought the opposite the best thing job's friends did was job 213 where it says they sat with him for seven days sat on the ground and they just wept with him they didn't say a word that's hard to believe for seven days I think if I can go an hour or two sitting by someone's bedside and just being quiet, like I've been patient a couple hours, seven days sitting there and not opening your mouth, wow. But sometimes just being present is the most encouraging thing you can do. 
Sometimes we just, we want to have all the words. We want to have all the knowledge. We want to have all the wisdom. What, what can I bring to the table? And sometimes it's just bring yourself. Sit there and let people know that you care about them. Even witnessing when you're going out to witness. I don't know what to share. I don't know what to say. Just you being there, even if you sit along with the people that go and say, I'm just going to offer a prayer to the Lord for them. Just them seeing that you made the effort to go could be a blessing to them. And that's how it is in a lot of our Christian walk. I don't think these men were super gifted or super talented or had the knowledge of Paul. They were just able. They were just willing. They were just present. And that's what we need more of in our lives. As I was studying this passage, there's a Greek word that really stood out to me. And it's pronounced soon. S-U-N in English the transliteration, soon. The word soon means with. It means to identify with. It means to be joined together in tight identification or unification with another. We see this word soon in Colossians 4.7. Paul calls Tychicus a soon doulos. He says, Tychicus is united with me as a slave of Jesus Christ. He's my fellow slave. It's used in verse 10 of Aristarchus. Paul says, he's a soon ahikmalitas. He's my fellow prisoner. He's unified with me in prison. And then he uses it again in verse 11. When he's speaking of Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, he says, these men are my soon ergos. These men are my men that are united with me in the sacred work. They're my fellow workers for Jesus Christ. These men were united with Paul. They were with Paul till the end. And as I mentioned, I don't think they were the most talented or the most gifted. They were just the most willing. We need people that are willing to serve the Lord. Proverbs 18:24 says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. How many of us grow closer together than we ever would if it wasn't for adversity, if it wasn't for some trial, if it wasn't for some difficulty that someone came alongside to you and you bonded more than you ever would? That's what these men did for the Apostle Paul. Number six. This man is a prayer warrior, Epaphras. He's one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. This Epaphras is believed to have started the Colossian church. Many believe Paul never even went there. Paul never was able to visit this church in Colossae. But it was Epaphras who was evangelizing there and in two other cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, and he led them to the Lord. He was their first discipler. He was like their first pastor, and he needs help. False teachers are coming in, false doctrines coming in, confusions coming in, and so what many believe is that Epaphras went to Rome to visit Paul so that he could get some insight. He can get some knowledge from Paul into how he could minister back to this Colossian church. When Paul writes this letter, and as we're you know, concluding this letter today and bringing this to a close in a couple minutes, if you remember, Paul, throughout chapters 1 and 2 and into 3, he's hammering who Jesus Christ is, the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see the word in him, with him, through him, over and over and over again. Paul is saying, I'm struggling so that you will know Jesus Christ. In him is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to be complete in Jesus Christ. They're throwing all these things at you guys. You need to know who Jesus is. He's the preeminent one. So Paul magnifies Christ, exalts Christ, glorifies Christ, expounds who Jesus Christ is. And while Paul's writing this letter and doing that, what's Epaphras doing? He's on his knees. He's crying out for this church. He's praying to the point of pain. It says in the next verse, in verse 13, he has a deep concern for you. King James, I think, says he has a, a, he's a zeal for you. 
He's zealous for you that you would stand firm in the faith, that you would stand on your own two feet, that you wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that you would be so secure that whatever comes your way, even if we're not there, you're going to be okay. You can take the training wheels off and you could ride the bike. We don't have to be outside to watch. We don't need to be at your side to catch you. You're secure in Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, I, Paul's saying of Epaphras, he's crying out to you until that happens in your life to, to where you are a mature Christian in Jesus to where we're here for you, but you don't need us to baby feed you. We don't need to hold your hand. We can take off the training wheels and let you go free. And so this word deep concern, polus panos, it means great pain. He has, Paul says, I vouch he has great pain for you. He wants so bad that you would be complete in Christ that it hurts him. That word's used three times in the book of Revelation as distress, pain. I think sores that come upon the world is panos in the Greek. And that's the same word Paul uses here. He's pained inside because you guys are seeming to shift a little bit. And a little bit can turn into a lot of it in a little while. So he's saying, stand secure in the Lord. This man wants that for you. So Epaphras is on his knees crying out to God. The NIV puts it this way. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. There's a key word in verse 12 that shows us what a great man Epaphras is. It really shows his heart. Do you know what that word is? It's the word always. He always wrestles with God. He always labors earnestly for you in his prayers. This wasn't a one-time thing. This wasn't a one-day thing. This wasn't like Paul's like, hey, I'm going to write this letter to the Colossian church. Let's bring it up for a group prayer. And then he just went on with his life. He always had concern for them. That's a true brother. That's a true friend. That's true love. Persisting in prayer when it's hard. Persisting in service when it's hard. Being a fellow worker, a fellow slave, a fellow encouragement when it's hard. So, as we get ready to bring this to a close, we've covered these first six men. Paul lists two more. Numbers 7 and 8 are in verse 14. And Paul skims over them quickly. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. We could perhaps do a whole teaching on the man Luke. Do you know that Luke wrote more in the New Testament than Paul did? Between Luke and Acts, there's more words than all of Paul's 13 letters. Luke was there with Paul. See the word we throughout the book of Acts. That's Luke saying we. I was there with Paul on that ship. I was there in Malta. I was there when he was standing before this governor. Luke was right there by his side, the beloved physician. Maybe Paul could use some help with all his wounds, all his scars, everything his body went through. At times God would heal him and at other times God would allow him to keep those wounds and perhaps Luke was there ministering to him helping him physically recover. And as I mentioned, 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, it said of him that he deserted Paul. But as far as we know, at this point in time, these eight men were an encouragement to Paul. So with that, we've unwrapped what I call these gifts of encouragement today. These men were gifts of encouragement to Paul and the Colossian church. Perhaps we wouldn't have this letter if it wasn't for the men that were behind Paul. You know, the quarterback and the wide receiver and the running back get all the credit, but they're nothing without the linemen. They're nothing without the rest of the team. You know, you have a pastor and he preaches a great sermon and people tell him great job or it goes viral online and he gets all the credit. People don't see his wife behind the scenes praying for him and loving him and they don't see the people encouraging him behind the scenes, they don't see the people in the church ministering and making it possible. You know, if Ivan didn't know how to do this, I'd be shouting louder because we wouldn't, if Ivan and Robbie weren't here, if some of you guys didn't come in this morning and put chairs out, you'd be sitting on the floor and so on and so forth. 
we'd still get the job done, but it wouldn't be pretty. And perhaps at some of the time, we wouldn't even get the job done. So we're in it together. You have encouragement all over the room. Sometimes we just need to ask. I close with Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. These verses I was pondering on this morning, meditating on, repeating over and over again, Philippians being another prison epistle. So you see Paul's heart in these three letters, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians. And I'll just read the first two verses. I was going to quote you the first 18, but we've got the cup and the bread ready. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says, you want to make my joy full? You want to be encouraged? Unite together. One mind, one faith, unified in Jesus. Strive after that. Strive to be unified in your home, in your church, with your brothers and sisters. And know that the Holy Spirit is always with you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be filled with him, be strengthened in him, and your courage and your encouragement will increase. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we can be encouraged today because you are on your throne. You are in control. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Thank you, Lord, that you rule in our hearts. And as we learn in the book of Colossians, you are our peace, Lord. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let his word richly dwell within you. We pray, Lord, that you would rule our hearts and that no weapon formed against us will conquer because you live, you reign, and we're yours. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.